listening to the Confessions of a Clairvoyant Housewife podcast. From marriage to menopause and margaritas, nothing is off the table. This is Cindy Goldenberg. Hi, this is Cindy Goldenberg. And today I'd like to talk about energy. Obviously, the universe and all of life is made of energy and we've all heard and watched the secret and what the bleep and all these things about a hard rock it's really molecules vibrating at a certain frequency and and that there's different parallel realities and that our thought creates our experiences and all those things are true but again i'd like to talk about what i do and how i see and interpret things and love to share with people But a lot of people come to me and say, well, I see things or I close my eyes or sometimes when I nod off at night, I see faces or I get scared or or think about kids or if you've had kids or when you were a kid, most frightening experiences are scary bump in the night things that make really good nightmares and uh, not nightmares, but um, what do you call it? Spooky movies, you know, based that are nightmarish. Uh, come from psychic experiences. I had one when I was little, and God dang, this shit was weird. And I was a sweet little girl. And it was on a day, I think my mom, I don't know, I must have been about three. Uh, my older sister and her Girl Scout troop, my mom was one of the um, chaperones, and they went on a little boat ride, and Los Angeles Harbor, San Pedro or something. I don't remember this. I do remember the spooky part. But um, she said, you know, we were on a little boat ride and then like the captain or something was turning his head or getting a cookie or something and there was a big ship moving towards them. And she got real scared, like, no, but we're going to crash, you know, and thought like, oh, no, they'll turn and everything. But, you know, there's a lot of big ships in these uh, harbors and dockyard. And she said, oh, my God, she started screaming, going, help, help, you know, we got to move. And I guess the guy jumped to it or whoever. I don't know how big the boat was, but I'm just trying to imagine an after school Girl Scout troop. And um, he hit the you know steering wheel and turned and she just said but this was a big ship i don't know if it was like a you know um tanker or what but you know she just said it was very frightening too close for comfort and i say that because i think when i told her about my scary little ghosty experience that i had later that night she says hmm that was funny that was on that day where i was really afraid so I don't know what that means. I'm just telling you because it was the event. I haven't really psychoanalyzed or meditated on it because I just haven't. But maybe it was because something was horrific and frightening and we were all in a different kind of, quote, vulnerable state. But anyway, I remember my bedroom... And uh, I think I slept with my sister in a little full bed, or maybe she had one and I had one in the room. I can't really say. 
And I think I was, I mean, I, my first memories, I think of certain things of that house in LA and when I was like two, but I just know we shared a room and she was uh, a few years older. Like she's like eight years older than me. So she had things like, so that would make her like a little girl, preteen. She had this lamp that you kind of screwed and it goes into the ceiling and then it had little prongs of the lampshade that would come off and she'd hook little, I don't know, little purses, little girl things, little purses and um, little hats. So it was this part of the room that stuff hung on, but it was a lamp, but it wasn't a floor lamp. It was, it, it was kind of connected to the ceiling. And one of the little things that hung was a Mickey Mouse, um, Donald Duck hat. And because we lived near Disneyland, I can remember always my whole life going there. And it was a Disney Donald Duck hat, like a little cap with just the duck bill on it. And the duck bill, you know, when you squeeze it, it would go whack, whack, make a little noise. So I remember this little, it just creeps me out even kind of talking about this, but you know, but I'm over it because... The other part of me and a lot of different, I don't know, dreams or visions or nightmares I've had, I get pretty kick-ass, like, you know, like, you talking to me, little taxi driver going, like, you talk, you, you challenging me, bring it on, mother fricker. you know, like, I got this, I got God, angels, Archangel Michael on my side, you're, you're done. But that's what I had to grow up to become. But anyway, back as a little girl, I woke up. And in those days, we used to have a little truck called Hellman's, and it was a bakery, and they made really good donuts, and it had a little bell on it, and a neat little truck, and it would come around, and they'd sell donuts. And also in the neighborhood was a little ice cream truck, and it was Adore, A-D-O-H-R, Farms. And we also had milk delivered in a little wire, but I know that's how old I am, little basket and it would, and he'd bring chocolate milk in the glass or white milk, you know, onto the front door and I'd open it up and I thought, oh. and they had to wear little uniforms. So something, some kind of insignia or something on the uh, truck, this little person and he was mischievous and he had a little white hat tilted and he was like a little elf kind of guy but he was scary because he didn't have spooky teeth or anything like that he wasn't monstrous looking but I knew that he was here to haunt me and he stood up and he was probably not even two feet and he had his little uniform and he was smart ass I could tell had cocked one leg over and had an arm on the hip and kind of leaning up against the lamp and I walked over to him to see like who he was or what he did. And I put my hand through him and he disappeared. But as he disappeared, he kind of went, made a noise like, a, <laughs> you know, and, and it was like not really squeaky. But I remember now I'm standing there and I thought, did I just see what I saw? Am I dreaming? And I touched the hat because he was kind of standing through it and he was kind of transparent. And I squeaked the hat and I thought, no, the hat made a, eh, 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 you know, whack, whack 
toy noise, like a dog toy. And I thought, no. And at that time, I was so frightened. I don't remember the rest, but my mom just said, you came screaming down the hall and we were in the living room watching TV and you couldn't catch your breath and say what you saw. That happens a lot. Kids dream, see things. My kids have seen things. I still kind of see things, but not so much. Now when I do, maybe when I'm on Dilaudin after a surgery in the hospital and I'm kind of drugged and I close my eyes and I basically just see people kind of softly trying to talk or their mouths move or even angelic faces. But sometimes I think it's the people in the hospital or around or maybe they pass and I think, no, 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 I want to sleep. I don't want to really converse with you or talk. But the thing is, is our brains really are cued to be open to different realities. For years, I've had a website it's different now. I'm making a new one now. Um, people have sent me pictures. I've taken pictures of huge spirit orbs with writing in them, um, ge sacred geometry to even after my dad died, writing on the wall that didn't show up, but then you take a picture because our ca cameras are so sensitive to outlines of faces and our dogs and pets in the carpet. This is normal. This is... Again, frequencies, just like a fan or moving your hand real fast. You see your fingers when you go real fast. It becomes a blur and you see through it. But who are these little tricksters or elves or whatever? I have one person I know on Facebook and she's a photographer. And she sent me these beautiful pictures. And they're, what do you call them, little pussy willows, the little desert, arid little soft, wormy-looking, you know, caterpillar-esque kind of a plant with straw out of it, and it was sunset and the pretty rocks of the desert. And I swear to God, you zoom in, and you see a perfect little male uh, fairy. And I've also caught female-looking fairies at Lake Shrine and sacred places um, in Los Angeles or you know, or just out in the grass or whatever. So, and I've seen them psychically too. Um, they're not scary. It's just there are, just like we have, um, what do you call it? Eyelash mites. You know, when you see those things in a book or Google eyelash mites, they look like 10-headed monsters with eight mouths. But they have a role to eat your dead skin on your eyelash. There are different dimensions, but things aren't here to really hurt or scare you. But children are open and vulnerable. And as we see things that scare us that are unknown, we shut down because it is dis disconcerting to be woken up or see something. Or, But rather than um, a parent going like, oh, no, it was just a bad dream. Children also have imaginary friends. They are friends. But you can also always bless a house and you don't have to be a rabbi or you know or an exorcist or a, you know or, uh, I'll talk about that in a minute you know the heavy quote evil stuff I got a theory on that um, but there are different 
vibrations and we can see and feel things. And so having this kind of ability, I can remember a few more times, not in that house, but when I was a little older, it happening again and happening again and happening again. And I think the last time, you know, like any kid, I don't know how old I was, maybe I was eight, and I walked down the hall with my pillow, and I wanted to go sleep with my mom and dad, because I just did, because that's what kids do. And I love my mom and dad, and they let me. And it was a little tract home in Huntington Beach, and I walked out the hall, and I had my pillow, and I felt myself get shoved through the pillow, and I knew it was him. And I ran, and I jumped over the dog at the foot of the bed of the floor, and they had a footboard, and I sprinted over it, and I landed on my mom and dad screaming and turned around and saw him before he disappeared, and they didn't see him. So I think of these things, and I think, does that mean you're psychic or whatever else? But my daughter used to just see people walk in her room and go, um, like, can you tell me which way Grand Central is? Or, you know, so it's kind of like dreaming awake. I'm not saying this to scare you or to have your children scared. I'm just saying it is normal, but it can also be, you can create a room of higher vibration through prayer, through ceremony. Uh, sage, a lot of people use sage and they, oh, it's very clearing and protective. And I think, I don't like the words protective, like, like you're not good enough and you, you know, something could get you. Um, nothing can get you. I want to make that clear. Nothing can get you. I did a show on ghosts. Believe me, nothing can get you, but you can think you can be gotten. <laughs> so that's where, you know, again, you're creating your intention and your beliefs are creating the outcome. So if you kind of know the difference, but I think maybe as I look back, my parents, I was a child of the 50s. My father and mother got married young. My father was a Marine. My father was hardworking. My father was uh, determined to support um, my mom and my half-sister, and he was also, um, the more I understand, a borderline personality disorder. He was abandoned by his own father, which is as common as cake. Everybody's got a backstory. He was violent. He was loving. He was alcoholic. He was needed to be loved. He was a violent uh, domestic abuser. He hit my mom. He had an explosive uh, temper. So I grew up knowing it wasn't me. Uh, you better watch what you do and say. But as a young child, I remember being very sober about it, like non-affected. Obviously, I was affected, but I'm trying to say as my memory, kind of like, 
okay, it's like we got, let's say, a dog, and he's a pound dog, and he loves me, but if someone comes by, he could bite the shit out of you. So I didn't look at it like it was a good or bad dog. It was just that's the way that dog is. So I looked at my dad and thought that's the way he is. It's nothing I'm doing or not doing, but it's it's a very... I just remember, and I can tell so many stories. You know, back then when the cops used to come to the door, you turn off the porch light and the cop would go, yes, sir, I understand. It's a family disturbance. Nowadays, it's like, are you out of your fucking mind? You're arrested. No, 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 But back then it was the 60s or the late 50s. Maybe because of that energy, of being with someone who, now that I understand, was so violent, and I understand domestic violence. And the way I understand it is, uh, I don't know, Oprah had a really good thing on it years ago and just said, I understand as she talked to the guy who was in prison for like beating and you know hurting his wife or girlfriend or something, and he goes, it's an addiction. And the anger is, it's a rage that I can't control and I have to express it. And when I do, I calm down. So I feel in control and actually low, and it's proven that when they're beating, their blood pressure goes down. So here you have a situation where in your mind, you have such subconscious and conscious rage and you think it's because of somebody doing something to you or it's part of your borderline or it's part of your mental illness or it's part of your uh, narcissist belief that you got to take care of yourself or attack or, you know, attack first before you're attacked or uh, rationalize and all these things we never talked about. But a little boy who loved his father so much who walked out and who wasn't available, who got straight A's and then punched his teacher in the stomach and got expelled at the school and got a job at 12 years old unpacking Revlon makeup in a department store in LA falling in love with a lady a few years older than her who was my mother this is kismet this is like a soul contract who at 17 went away to use that anger in a productive noble way and become a marine United States Marine Corps, soldier, Korean War, two rounds, not once but twice, and then come back and try to reunite with the pretty blonde that he had the crush on, marry her, and create a home, and then have me. So I see all the noble things. I don't overlook. I've worked through a lot, but I do forgive the actions because I understand them, as did he when he finally got sober and went to AA well into his early 60s. But you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> My point, going back to energy, the energy in that home was I always knew I was not only loved, I was revered, I was relished, I was wanted, 
I was adored. I was put on a pedestal. I was baby talked. I was cradled and lifted and laughed and joyed. And then when my father got angry, I thought, what's wrong with you? You're listening to another story in your head. I'm right here and I'm loving. Mommy's loving. But as now I look back, I go, of course, you can't receive when you're in your story of your pain. Now, sidebar here, not the same circumstances and not obvious and not domestic abuse, but I see that pattern in myself, in my marriage, in my children, in their relationships, in my extended family, in my friends. I see this kind of borderline kind of nurturing, codependent, if I love you and I understand you, and and in friendships I've had, networking, other psychic people, other authors, man, I see this kind of, oh my God, this is a real mental disorder when you are abandoned emotionally or physically or even just looked at with condition as a child and your the parents light eyes don't light up or you could do better or what are you doing or no less you're a fool you're a fuck up or i hit you or i sexually abuse you or all those other things that are obvious that i know in doing the kind of uh, spiritual counseling i've done i it is beyond common but the brain, be it borderline personality disorder or not, the brainwave pattern of neglect or being looked at with condition, if you do this, you don't do this, or I am in control, and you leave the room, you are discarded, you are told that you are punished, that you have to go stand in the corner. All these things that we think are effective. Take a child's psyche and say, I'm not loved. Now, I could go on. I could re recite ar uh, articles, but I've really studied this in the past few years, like I told you. And back to the science, the brainwave is the same as taking a kid and beating the shit out of him. So is it abuse when you're just not available? So in a way, even though I wasn't hit, or maybe one time I was when I got a little snarky, deservingly so, because this man deserved to be challenged. And I did have to, quote, walk on eggshells in all my teen years, but it, a lot of people in the 50s or whatever, I don't know, have lived like this. But on the whole, I was not looked at or challenged or even sideways like, mm, could have got a better grade or anything else. I was looked at as like, oh, you look so beautiful today. I love you so much. Oh, and even though he would fuck up, and he would drink, or he would get explosive, or he'd act like an ass. And then when I got older, or go out in public and, and put my head down and think I have a fucking loser, I always knew it wasn't me. 
And now I look and think what a gift that is because my energy was grounded. It also made me, again, one of my favorite books, Codependent No More by Marion Beattie. What is it, 20, 25-year-old classic? It just describes everybody. We're all a codependent to a certain extent. And our codependent isn't like, oh, you're a codependent. You're just really a jerk and go to Al-Anon and get over it. <laughs> codependent is a beautiful thing. It is a nurturing thing. It is a nun. It's a minister. It's a rabbi. It's a teacher. It's a I'm available. I, I, it's all good traits. But they're traits that you read about when you look at the charts of do you love to give and nurture or do you do things and then people get upset and people don't take it yes or do you do this and then it frustrates you or hurts you when they don't um, return the favor yes we're not talking about logic we're talking about that inner middle of the night urge to be honest so when i look and think in my life in order to be in control of the predictable unpredictability I had to be vigilant focused deliberate strong and responsible I had to be responsible I don't know if that's accountable, but I was responsible. I was the parent. I was the teacher. I was the leader. I was fearless. I was, fuck it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I also had other issues as a teen and different things and, you know, and sensitivity. But my character that I'm proud of, my character as I was like, Again, a tall kid, and I remember there was another girl named Cindy, and you know there was a we lived in tract homes, and you got to go back to, you know, the slinky and all the little toys and the Barbie dolls and the games, and um, I had the most games. I had everything. I had the tether ball and the jungle gym in my backyard. I had the most everything, and I had the bigger garage. So everybody came over to my house. Eight, ten kids almost every day. And there was another girl named Cindy, and I was taller. And they go, No, we're going to go to Big Cindy's house. So that didn't bother me because I was bigger, I was taller. But on the other hand, it was like, Because I'm big, I'm first. So everybody follow me, and we're all going to go take a nickel and go get Butterfingers at 7 Eleven. And I am in charge. And it made me a leader. It made me fearless. I wasn't good at everything, but I tried. I went back to school. I mean, I tried. I went to law school. I went, I got A's in anatomy and I got D's in statistics, you know, can't do math. I think it's a subconscious thing. One time when my dad yelled at me when I was in second grade doing numbers, I really do. I think I kind of peed because his voice got kind of like, you're not listening. And, you know, he, he really wasn't yelling at me, but he's just, most parents weren't good at teaching their kid and it was a little worksheet so i i don't do math and i could give a shit but back to the energy i was raised in a volatile household my survivor instincts were to be in charge 
And so, therefore, I could never feel anxious if I was in charge. Fast forward to sit down, let me feed you, let me love you, let me give you everything, I take care of you, and don't challenge me. God damn it. And then if you do, what the fuck? What the fuck? You know? So I see this, and I understand it, and I'm glad I have the book to see it in black and white. But I do marvel and I do appreciate the good and the bad because we all have it. It's what made me who I am. But the point is I was loved. But maybe going back to the little spooky things, maybe because I was vulnerable of the unknown and maybe because certain things, or maybe it would have happened anyway because I've done things where there's places and different places or what you call haunted because there's energy of earthbound people that don't want to go in the light and, and it's really because of fear and all evil is really pain it's just people's pain and they're mad and they're pissed and they're angry but back to my story so I grew up being sensitive and intuitive but also like Scarlett O'Hara I will never go hungry again and as I got into my teens and as I got removed from Southern California and as I lived an impoverished life, I thought I will be something and I will not be ever in this kind of weak state. Yet, at the same time, in a spiritual forgiving way, I was loved. Now, compare that to, for instance, my husband. I met him when I was 24 and I had dated, you know, off and on, and I was a pretty dancer and a showgirl, like I say, and it was a big deal to be one back in 1975 and Hallelujah Hollywood and Las Vegas and Siegfried and Roy. And, but really, I mean, he had a, I graduated high school, went to college, and I liked to audition, and I was too tall to be. I did one TV show, Tony Orlando Adon at CBS, where they do American Idol now. But on the whole, I was just too tall. So if I danced and there was a singer, you know, on a variety show, I'm taller than them. But in Vegas, I was normal height. You had to be 5'10". But on the whole, there was not a lot of men or boys to date. It was just a handful of hotels. It was kind of not young yet. I mean, Neil Diamond maybe started to come around in 1970, but it was more like my mother's generation of Sinatra and Dean Martin. There was one club, little disco we went to every night. Nobody would come up to us and talk. There was one fun little gay club, and I would take out-of-towners or my parents or something to the um, drag show, you know, female impersonator. But there was, and, and there were other variety show headliners, but there was nothing to do. And there was no one to do. And when you're a young, pretty girl, you want a boy to kiss and play with. And there was nothing. So when I went back to college, I didn't really, I mean, I dated, but I'm painting a story and being honest. I was alone the majority of my time. But there were plenty of lucky bartenders in there. So don't worry. But by the time I met him, I never really dated anyone more than a few months. And then I'd just rather be out and go out with friends and or be alone or go ski. I'd go take ski trips alone and stuff like that. But when I met him, it was 1981, 
This is 2020. I have been with him since the day I met. So when I say something about him, I love my husband dearly. I obviously want credit, even though I got married in 85. I want credit for the whole almost 40 years. I have been with this man since the day I met. But marriage is ever-evolving. Relationships are ever-evolving. And I'm still learning. He isn't. <laughs> he, but I keep thinking today's the day he's going to get it. He's going to figure it out. Because that's that part in me that was raised to not give up and to focus and to get what I want. But what has this got to do with what I'm saying about worth? He, on the other hand, came from the East Coast and a country club lifestyle and a prep school and uh, great universities. And he scored, he has such ADD and genius levels. He scored um, so high on his law school admission test, but he didn't want to go to law school because he knew he'd have to study. And so when he took the test, he was in a big hurry to go to a ball game. And so he zipped through it really quickly and it still was like so high, but he only applied to like Stanford and one other school like Harvard because he didn't, he knew like he had to be super good and he, and he was good, but not that good because he didn't want to go. He likes films. He went into filmmaking and, you know, and art history and artistic and everything. But he was one of those kids that couldn't stop talking. He was put in the hall. He was funny. He still is. Sometimes not. Annoying. More like, it's kind of like I say, I fell in love with Jerry Seinfeld and I ended up with Larry David. But my point is, is what is witty and funny and charming and silly. I knew he was my best friend and we just have been linked up and like two puppies running in a field. Now, almost 40 years later, I'm understanding more. I mean, I understood then you have come from a background and he has healed his relationships as, as best he could but you have come from a background where you don't feel your worth and you were raised by, you know, addiction and alcoholism and you were privileged and you had everything and, and you were grateful. You weren't a bat. You were a perfect child, but you were never told that. And you were funny and you were witty and you were never told that. And you were only told how annoying you were. You were only told to stay out in the hall and you were only, and you didn't, they didn't know about ADD and they didn't know about things like that. And that you were so genius level that everything made you so fucking bored that you'd crack jokes. Instead, they told you how inferior and you're not working and the teachers. So you were basically put down. And to this day, after all these years, this is the biggest problem in our relationship is that I have worked on my worth but I have to look at him and go, he's tried, but he never had it. So how could he make that seed grow? So it's not complaining. It's just analyzing and looking at why don't you understand that you're great and you're good. And he, you know, he got me as a wife and look what I do and look what I say. And you've seen me and go to these. But the point is like my father you don't know your worth. My dad discovered it in AA 
and he loved it and I knew he would and he went for years and he went to veterans and everything else. But some people, it can't land this worth. And even though you say you are, and now I see it in some patterns, I see it in a lot of the relationships I've had with very good friends. And like I say, I've networked with many great, wonderful professionals. Some started out as clients and everything else, but I end up with these people that have a lot. We all have certain borderline personality disorders. They're supposed to be like 260 something, but the kind that really cannot process that they argue and they're mad and they're angry and they don't know why and they're compulsive and impulsive and they're agitated and they just can't be happy and no matter what you do and you give and you rationalize and you understand the mommy and the daddy in the background, you just can't get to a place where you can understand that you have a worth and that you are loved and valued because you were raised to question that. So what I thought and used to teach years ago and say, well, it's like attract like. Like why does a guy who has everything, has the wife and two kids and the picket fence and the great job and everything else, go out and cheat on his wife and do coke and sabotage a good job, and, you know, and just basically fuck up? Why? You had everything. And... With one client, I remember just meditating and closing my eyes and seeing this little, the the husband or the ex-husband as a little blonde boy with blonde hair with his mommy in the Midwest and she's drunk and she knocks over a bar stool and it's like a little pub area, you know, but bring kids in and he's a little boy and he looks at her and she goes, I wish you were never born. So maybe it was just that moment, but there's more than those moments. And then as I talked to the person, they said, yes, this was true. And the father was alcoholic and the mother was this. And And even though, you know, he grew up and he wanted to become the best policeman, he wanted to become this, he wanted to become everything, the American slice. He just would sabotage a good thing. Well, now that I understand the actual mental disorder and the characteristics of it, I don't, it's, 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 it's kind of freeing to know for me as an enabler and a nurturer and a minister and a counselor and an inspirer, I can tell you all those things, but unless you can really feel it, it's not going to land because it's part of your subconscious defense mechanism to block it. Because if love means to you, I hate you, I wish you were never born, no matter how much love you get, you're going to sabotage it because you can't get love. So that's how I used to look at it. I mean, I still do, but now I understand that's called borderline. So then they go into the inner child and protect the child and say they feel upset and abandoned, so it must be you. So my dad would look at my mom and go, I got to pound the shit out of you because I don't feel good. And it makes me calm. Or, you know, the boyfriend with the girl goes, you didn't call me. You didn't do this. You're not doing this. You're not acting the way I want you to. And it's all not true. 
but you try to say, yes, I love you. I do this. I nurture you. I did everything right. But well, then fuck it. It's either black and white. They do a lot of black and white thinking. And then even in my own relationship with my husband, this unnecessary, and I'm not proud of it, bantering and screaming days and days and years and years and arguing and back and forth. I think, why are we arguing? And you're so frustrating. We're not arguing about a topic. We're arguing about how you talk to me. Like, what the fuck? You talking to me like this and this and that? And now I realize a lot of these things are habits because it you are afraid to be loved. So I say this because so many of us are like this and it's okay because it is a defense mechanism. You don't know any other language. I don't know any other language, but I do know that I have the language I have to be a nurturer or to be in control in order to protect my fear or protect myself because it was a survivor mechanism. And the same person who frustrates you in a relationship or someone you know, and it could be a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, or just a good friend or anything, or a friendship, doesn't have to be romantic, that makes you talk circles and they call you and attack you and then you think you're friends and then you talk it out and you think everything you're saying is very coherent and it can't land because their energy is broken and they don't understand that they're in defense mode and protective mode. And so a lot of our energy is spent on this programming and these stories and these incidences and our upbringing, regardless good or bad or indifferent, and we don't even know it. So we're not doing anything wrong, but what we can do is discover the markers. What we can do is discover things in ourselves by asking. And, and what we can do with any situation, starting with ourselves, is to send forgiveness to the entire situation. So if not, the people who have the bitterness of you did this to me and I grew up like this. Now, granted, you're deserving to have it, but I grew up like this and you did this to me and I'll never speak to you again. What you're really doing is saying, I don't want to love. I don't want to be loved. I want to be hurt. I'm miserable. I don't know how not to be miserable. And I'm always angry. And that even though you love your kids, even though you go to the grocery store and the Nordstrom sales and you go do everything and people have lives, you are missing out because you're holding this contentious rationalization. At the same time, why is it up to me to figure you out and figure me out and see that you're okay and then I'm going to let you go or whatever else because I don't get left off the hook. You're still a pain in my ass. That's true, but that's not why you're doing it. The other thing is when you target the forgiveness towards an incident or a memory or a habit, you do it for yourself 
because you don't want this subconscious unknowing tape hamster wheel to keep going on in your life. It isn't just to break the monotony. It's to break the patterns that we don't realize that we're creating and attracting. So how you do it, and it, like I say, if you don't, you grow up bitter. And there's a really good book called um, The Five Types of People that will Ruin Your Life. <laughs> now, it talks just kind of clinically about like borderline personality disorder or histrionic or narcissist um, controlling people. But it's written from an attorney's um, point of view who's done mediation for like 30-something years and says, when somebody says, I will ruin your life or I will sue you, believe them. And then he has these great little guidelines in it and says, you know, like when you talk to someone or you try to rationalize or you try to, and I'm, I, I'm trying to um, blend this with a spiritual, sympathetic, compassionate way of approaching loving, forgiving, uh, way of conversing like well I love you I understand you and you were abused and you were this and you were that and nah, 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 nah. like me you know this is me I think like this and mm, I can get it I can rise above or I can bless it or I can nah, 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 nah. but now what I had to read in black and white is that okay hold the phone would 90% of the average population behave this way no but they're broken, and so I can understand it. That wasn't the question, Cindy. Would 90% of the population behave this way? No. If the answer is no, walk away. What, what, what? No, I have to help. No, walk away. Detach. Because they are processing in their own world, and you could be related to them. You could know them at, during the holidays. They see life. They are the victim. They are bitter. They are, you know, you hear stories of families and then the, they get older and then the parent dies and they sue each other and, you know, and family, like where the hell did all this animosity come from and all these things because these things never got healed. And so when you realize that if you grew up and you didn't have worth, your assignment is to make that happen for yourself. And you don't have to know how exactly, but you have to be willing to forgive yourself for not asking sooner. And you have to be willing to be open to learning a new language of self-care. So little ditties that I can tell you, little metaphysical um, principles like, let's see, if you are, if you attack, that's because you have self-hate. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. She said I was an asshole and shitty and didn't do this and didn't do this and how dare, what do you mean? I got to stand up for myself. Okay, okay. That means you're stepping down to her level. Go ahead. If it feels good, do it. But be conscious that you're doing it and you're only going to do it a short time. But be conscious that you now have become it. You've become it. Someone says, fuck you. And you go, fuck you. 
You're in a fuck you driving lane. Okay, so all attack is self-hate. So now think of somebody who attacks. Now bring it down. Bring the volume down a little bit. Just think of people who judge. Look at that. Look at that person. Bigots. Oh, Democrats. Republicans. Oh, this person. Ah, oh, that person. Ah, oh, that driving lane. It's quiet. It's subtle. I'm entitled. I'm this. I'm that. It's still attack. It's still judgment. And it's still self-hate. Yes, but I go to church. I go to temple. I do it. Those are conditions and those are your story. And if you want it to be true, you can think it's going to be true, but I'm not. I'm just telling you it's a mirror. It's a left turn. It's a right turn. It's just the mechanics of everything. If you attack, it's self-hate. And if you self-hate, you can't receive love. And if you can't receive love, you're going to be bitter and you're going to rationalize and you're going to stay in that cycle and that song and that memory, and which is fine. Or realize that you're dealing with someone who is like that and don't take it personal and just know that on one hand, in God's way, they're dealing the best they can. Does it piss you off and hurt you? Yeah. So what did I just say? What did the books just say? If 90% of the people would react that way and you say no, so that means that these people are imprinted in knowing the only way they know how, which is to attack and blame and be the victim. And they are good at it. And so it doesn't mean you'll get sued. I have been. Doesn't mean that you'll get targeted. I have been. But it means that you're dealing with someone so irrational. And even though you may know every inch of their story and have sadness and compassion and have lit a thousand candles for them, it's like I know personally very good people who are close to me who started off as clients that have children of addiction. They're not bad kids. It is horrible. But we are all addicted to our thoughts and our programs. So we don't have to master it. We just have to understand if we have a choice to take care of ourselves or to see it in someone else and lovingly step away and surrender it. So again, these metaphysical principles are all attack is self-hate. All blaming does is attract shame. And all guilt attracts punishment. So the forgiveness part is quick and easy. I forgive myself for thinking this was my responsibility to blame or to attack or to be responsible for you. I forgive myself for thinking I had control over this situation or you. I forgive myself for getting involved. And I forgive myself for thinking that I had, that I did anything wrong. So when we use those kind of words, what that does is really clear an open, content, uh, 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 an open intention of receiving the opposite, everything that is good and clear and open. 
So what you can do is just remind yourself and affirm that love, that you are safe, that you are loved, that you are constantly being resurrected and healed, and that if you can't feel it, ask and dialogue with, I call it your higher team, your divine team, how can I feel the love you have for me? How can I see myself through your eyes? And when you ask these kinds of questions, you will hear answers. It's good to put on a little music. It's good to grab a pen and not so much type because then you use the left-right brain and you can hear and feel. But you have these answers in you. You are automatically intuitive. And so... As we look back on people who hurt and continue to hurt or disappoint us, we don't distance ourselves by saying, okay, I'll just, um, you know, show up for one. If you don't want to talk to them anymore, you don't have to. But you can talk to their angels. You can talk to yours. They're your messengers. Say, hey, guys, would you go tell her that I really, the part that God made and that she's loving and everything, the part that's loving, I would love to have a relationship, but I don't mean any ill will. The message will get delivered. It's not up to you to get tangled. But on the other hand, I'm telling you these things so you don't deprecate, so you don't go home and talk to yourself, so you don't get hurt or believe in the pain. I still, you're still going to feel the pain and the disappointment but you can work through it. It's a process. But what I see over and over, not just in clients and in teaching, but now that I'm telling you this and seeing this over and over, I sincerely thought, because I've read hundreds of books in my favorite Course in Miracles, Conversation with God, that if you pour enough love and light on a situation or a person, they will transmute. Maybe in another dimension, but not this one. So maybe they live in the little funny dimension with the little spooky things or whatever. Or maybe they live in pain like the earthbound. Like I say, earthbound people. There's, I really, you know, the whole devil demon thing is a really good analogy. But hell is pain. And pain is grief loss, and separation from love. So when we don't feel loved or we don't feel valued or we don't feel anything, that's a lot of pain. And, we, and, and pain deserves to be heard because it needs to be heard in order to be healed. And the way it's healed is because it's heard, it's transmuted, it no longer holds pain. So saying that, if we can look at people and ourselves and our relationships in a little more objective, healthy way, that healthy way is to detach with love, to know it's not your assignment, that you did what you could, that they're doing it their way, but their way may not be your way. And then be open to receiving new ways or new people. And that's okay. Thank you. And remember, you're greater than you realize. 
You have been listening to the Confessions of a Clairvoyant Housewife podcast with intuitive expert, Cindy Goldenberg. To learn more or stay connected, be sure to visit www.cindygoldenberg.com.